folks, and welcome back to the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast. My name is David Galea, and it's great to have you along for another session of some homegrown Australian music in the jazz and groove vein. Well, what do we have in store for this episode? Well, today we'll be talking to Dan Quigley. Now, Dan is a trumpet player, a composer, and an educator living in Brisbane, and is the musical director of the Jazz Music Institute, or JMI. Now, JMI is Australia's only tertiary institution that is solely dedicated to the education of jazz. So that's why it makes it so unique throughout Australia. Now, we'll be talking to Dan about what it was like to grow up in the jazz community, how he developed a love of music, and also the approach that JMI takes as an institution to the education of jazz. We'll also hear some of Dan's music that he composed and recorded on an album of his called Brunswick Street Station, as well as some music from other graduates of JMI that have gone on to carve out their own careers in jazz. So let's get down to it. And first, a track from Travis Jenkins, a graduate of JMI, a guitarist, and also now a faculty member teaching at JMI. And he released a recording back in 2015 called the Travis Jenkins Quartet, live at the Brisbane Jazz Club. And here is a track from it that also features Brad McCarthy on alto saxophone, Nick Quigley on double bass, Dan's brother, Sam Mitchell on drums, and this is a track called Rumpy Bumpy. Thank you. 
So that was the voice of Charlotte McLean and a track called You Love, You Live from her latest recording entitled Magnolia. Now Charlotte is also a graduate of JMI and is now part of the JMI faculty. And on this recording, she had on guitar Bruce Woodward, on drums Aaron Jans, who was also another JMI graduate, and on bass Luke McIntosh. Such a great track. So now it's time to introduce our special guest, musician, composer and educator Dan Quigley. Now he is the musical director of JMI, the Jazz Music Institute, and back in 2014 he released his recording, Brunswick Street Station, which features Dan on trumpet, Andrew Dickinson on drums, Brendan Clark on bass, John Harkins on piano, Cole Loftnan on tenor sax, and Bob Bertels on alto saxophone. So this is a t- the title track from Brunswick Street Station, So let's have a listen to that and then we'll get into the interview with Dan. Thank you. 
Well, Dan Quigley, welcome to the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on and just wanted to talk to you about a lot of things and we know you've been pretty heavy in the Brisbane music scene and jazz scene for a long time, but I know that your introduction to jazz was very different than what a lot of other people's is. Did you want to just sort of give us a bit of a background into how you got into jazz and your story with that? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, it is a little bit different to a lot of my um, peers and colleagues, that's for sure. And uh, my father um, is a musician and uh, when we were kids, like, you know, really little, he was organising workshops or he was actually studying at the Sydney Conservatorium himself. And, um, you know, through his own, he was a little bit frustrated as a, you know, a different mentality to teaching back then and, um, you know, people weren't always very generous in wanting to share their ideas and share, you know, sort of stuff. And there wasn't a lot of, so this is the, um, like, this is the mid-70s. Um, yeah, right. And there wasn't a lot of um, actual sort of pedagogy around teaching, um, even in the States. It only got, sort of really got formalised in the 60s. So I guess it was still in Australia, it was really, really brand new. So he started to... Um, what he did is he, he people would like be on tour. So, you know, people would come out and tour and he would sort of just meet the guys in the band. And from there, he would, you know, he, what he realised is that a lot of Americans, they were all like really open to sharing whatever they wanted to share, like, you know, from, you know, equipment that they're using to actual, you know, musical theories that they employ in their playing or whatnot. And so he... um organized a workshop with um, the first one he did was with Don Rader and he just thought it was going to be a trumpet workshop because my father's a trumpet player as well. And um, to his surprise, you know, the, the workshop had like, you know, over a hundred people come to it and there are sax players, you know, piano players, drummers, bass players, everyone. And a lot of people that he just didn't expect to come. And so he realized that a lot of people are curious about this and, what was happening is people were sort of going overseas and going to New York and getting lessons and then coming back and not sharing their stuff. So he sort of worked out, oh, well, you know, hey, if I bring one person out, they can share that information to a lot of people um, as opposed to one person going over there and not sharing it. So um, so that was how, um, you know, it was always sort of around the family. Um, But... You know, I my first memories of, um, you know, playing music and all this sort of stuff myself was in the school band. So I, I remember joining the school band when I was in grade three. And, um, you know, so obviously prior to that, my dad was showing me how to play the instrument and fingerings and all sort of stuff, but I really have no recollection of any of that sort of stuff. But I joined the school band and, I mean, I just sort of figured that's what everyone did. I just thought, I just thought everyone did this. <laughs> And that was what was, I guess, that's, this is the strange part. And then I, um, on the, on my mother's side, um, my mom and her, her father, they were heavy into the brass band scene, the the English sort of brass band scene. So I got involved in a brass band and, you know, that music's also incredible. And, um, you know, by this stage, it's sort of like, you know, the early to mid eighties. And so I was also interested in all the sort of, electronic music was coming out and my sister Paula she's two years older than me 
you know, she, I, yeah, had she influenced me a lot with the popular music that was going on. So I was into like, you know, Madonna and yeah, yeah, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. It was, yeah, it was really cool stuff. I, I loved it all. And then, um, you know, as I got more involved with things, I got involved in the local orchestra and you know this sort of stuff. But and it wasn't until I was in um, sort of like mid high school. I remember being like grade. Um, in the school holidays between grade 10 and grade 11. And, um, yeah, my father had a, a very extensive record collection. And so the very first record that I remember putting on myself was an Art Farmer record. And um, and I put it on because the the album cover looked really cool. And I was yeah. like, this looks really cool. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I put it on. And I actually really got into it. I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. Um and then, like, around this time when I was in, like, mid-high school, you know, I had a job and I went to the record store and I bought um, my own my, my own CD. And the first CD I bought was um, Lee Morgan's The Sidewinder. Oh, wow, yeah. And, cool. like, I got home and I put it on. And I, I didn't know I didn't know what it was. I, I knew Lee Morgan, like, I knew of him, I knew who it was, but I didn't know this particular record before I bought it. And so I um, went home and put it on and I just remember thinking like, wow, like why wouldn't you want to play music like this? Like, yeah, yeah. This is just <laughs> unreal. And I, I still loved being involved in the, you know, the orchestras and the brass bands and I loved it all. So I, I sort of had a, I just, I, again, like, I just assumed that everybody had this experience. Like everyone loved, everybody loved all styles of music. And I sort of, it didn't, you know, it wasn't until that sort of late high school sort of thing where those, you know, um, different social circles happen and you sort of realise, oh, people, you know, people didn't know who Miles Davis was. And I was like, oh, that's surprising. I thought you all knew who he was, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of how I got into it really. It was sort of initially it was my father and stuff and then it was, and it ended up being through my own discovery of, you know, and that's what actually really that's when I really got hooked into it when I when I was starting buying records with or CDs with my own money. And that was that was the the big the big difference there. Yeah, awesome. So um you were saying that your dad sort of started these um these clinics and that and I noticed on your website there's some great sort of photos of him hanging out with some of these heavy guys that came from the States. Did you appreciate who they were at the time when you were meeting them as a younger fella? Uh, no, and it's um, you know, it's 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 like the people that came out that he brought out is just um, unreal list of people like um, Joe Henderson and Freddie Hubbard, Woody Shaw, wow. John Schofield, Steve Swallow, Adam Nussbaum, um, Mulgrew Miller, uh, Tony Reedus, um, Steve Teray, uh, this Dave Lehman, um, Mike Knock, uh, Ron McClure. That, that's you know that's half of it there's like there's more like people like david baker john mcneil uh, randy brecker wow this um, <laughs> just keeps going on and i mean and what is 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 awesome and it's amazing but it's also um you know in my position it's also it's very daunting because there's a, a huge expectation yeah that yeah. you know you've you're around such greatness that you have to be good. So yeah. there's a there's a lot of um, expectation um, that 
that we in our family in particular feel, you know, because yep. of this. However, the amazing thing is, is that all these, all the, out of all those people that are still alive, um, they still contact dad, you know, regularly. Like he'll get a, you know, um, our mum passed away uh, eight years ago now and he got emails from all those guys like Schofield and that. They, they all sent him an email. It was like, wow, that's so nice. Yeah. So it goes to show like these sort of, um, that was really quite a, a, they're really lovely people and it was really um, how generous they really are as people.
so with JMI, how do you balance now being a musician of your own, you know, working on your own craft, working on your own compositions with running a tertiary institution like JMI? How does that go for you? Oh, pretty good. Um, like I, I'm very lucky at, at um, JMI to have, you know, people who want to come and study music on a serious level. Yeah. And that's the way I really try to approach it with people. I think it's, it's, um, it's, I mean, I, I still love all sorts of music. I still, I actually love everything. Like I listen to a lot of classical music at the moment and I'm listening to, you know, my wife, she's, she's getting right into collecting vinyl. So we're listening to lots of different styles yeah, of music cool. and all that sort of stuff. And what's great about it is I like to link as, as a, as a, like, the thing is for me is that I see that there are more similarities in all styles of music than what there are differences. So I see my job as a teacher is to point out these similarities and that the, the different labels that we have for different styles of music, um, these labels have been put on the music, not necessarily by musicians there or, or they've been put on there by, um, you know, journalists as such, as and the media have, have created these names for things in order to describe what it is that makes it different to something else. But when we break these things down to musical elements, there's more things that are similar than different. And I think that's that's a really important thing for people to who are, who are studying music to understand. It's like, well, you know, like, it's important to point out the difference between like, you know, um, point, sorry, the similarities It's important to point out the similarities between listening to um, let's say like Louis Armstrong and, you know, hell like um, Herbie Hancock, headhunters or something, you know, there's, yeah. there's so many similarities that are going on there. Um, even with the beat and that sort of stuff and how the beat is formed and those sorts of things. And I think by, opening people's uh, ears up to and, and ideas up to these, these sorts of things helps them sort of grow as a musician. That then also helps me sort of as a, as a um, composer for myself, um, it gives me a lot of inspiration to draw from. And then it, it also helps me to just keep searching out and listening, like checking out what's, what's out there to sort of go, oh, what am I liking or what am I gravitating towards? And, and all that sort of stuff also has an influence. As a performer, I play the trumpet. So um, it's, you know, typically known as a grueling instrument. So I actually love practicing. So I pretty yeah. much practice every day. Um, you know, I do probably take the weekends off, but I practice <laughs> um, every single day. And, you know, some days it's, might only be for 20 minutes. Other days it could be for two or three hours, depending on what I've got available to me my own time. But I love practicing. I love figuring things out. I love trying to work on just getting, you know, better. And over time I've gotten comfortable with, you know, the millimetre of progress you might make in a month. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and enjoying that sort of thing. And I, and I, actually, I really love that a lot, I, you know. Yeah, awesome. So with J JMI, your curriculum is based heavily on like jazz standards and that, but I noticed when you were talking about finding these connections between all this other kind of music, do you, what is it about the jazz curriculum that helps people explore all these other kinds of music? 
you know, because I know that it's yeah. almost like a, a, a stepping stone into all these other theory. Why is the jazz harmony or jazz curriculum so good for that? Yeah, it's interesting. And um, because that, you know, this is a, another good talking point too, isn't it? Because I think it, it, why it's also good, which I'll, I'll do my best to elaborate from my perspective. Yeah, yeah. It's also, I think some, sometimes it, I, I often wonder is like why people don't tap into it. And so um, I think the, at the, at the outset of it is that the, the things that are good about it is that we, music is an art form and that we, you know, as, as a musician, you're asking yourself to be an artist of some sort. And it's important to then, if you're going to be an artist, is to be creative. Um, so I know in high school when I was doing my Amy B grades and um, I, I enjoyed playing the music, like the, uh, the trumpet concertos and all that sort of stuff. That was cool. I, I really love that. But I didn't enjoy doing all the like scales and all mm. that other stuff that was just so, it was so boring and um, I hated it. And it wasn't until I sort of got into, um, you know, uh, into understanding why we need to know these things. Like what is the point of learning scales? What is the point of learning arpeggios? And if you're not going to, um, you know, compose music or do something with them, there is no point to learning them. Um, and that's why I think it's at the same time. I think there's a, a lot of people out there that take a lot of there's you know take a lot of comfort in actually practicing that stuff because it's just something to practice. Yeah, you know, yeah. like yeah, if they if their teacher says get this scale down at this tempo, that gives them a goal and they get that gratification out of it. Yeah. But that didn't, that didn't happen for me. Um, so it was more about like when I started being creative with these things or especially hearing some things in records. Like I remember hearing a, um, a little Freddie Hubbard a thing where he played this like scales and thirds, like that, and that was in part of one of his solos. And that's when I was like, oh, right, okay, well, that's, <laughs> that's why I should probably do that now, yep. you know. So that was that was an interesting thing there. Um, the other thing too, I think the biggest thing, and I think the most important thing about um, music across all styles is rhythm. And rhythm is uh, largely undertaught, and it's something that we, you know, a lot of time people say, "Oh, you just got to feel it" or whatnot. But yeah. you know, if we look at the rhythmical elements of music, um, gosh, there's you know, there's so many connections that are the same. Um, you know, you've seen that. Um, there's that Boosie Collins clip where he talks about on the one. Yep. And yep. he does he does this whole <laughs> groove thing, you know. Yep. And it's just so groovy and so cool. And like you hear it, and you and he explains it, and you're like, well, that is just that's awesome. Yep. And then you know you've got a concept like how Galper has his whole forward motion concept, and it's it's the same thing. But yeah. how Galper's forward motion concept, he starts that back at analyzing Bach. And going, well, let's yep. look at how Bach used this forward motion thing of, you know, landing on beat one and getting to the next beat one. So there's that rhythmical element. Um, the the idea of the like the drum kit itself, you know, the history of the drum kit and, you know, the backbeat and all that sort of stuff. And you, you, once, you know, when you start investigating these sorts of things, so, you know, like, um, and you hear Winton talk about this a lot where he says, you know, the regardless of style if there's a drum kit in it let's say the the highest pitch instrument is the cymbal 
the lowest pitch instrument is the bass drum, and they get played all the time together. Mm. And then you create, you know, in as a, on a jazz feel, you create a backbeat with the hi hat on beats two and four, and in a rock feel, you change the symbol to the hi hat and you create a backbeat on the snare drum on two and four. Yep. So those sorts of things, um, you know, I've, I find when I point those sorts of things out to my students, they can start going, "Oh right, okay, yeah, there here are these similarities again," you know. Yep. Yep. Um, and it's only in classical music like that we don't hear a backbeat, basically. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So composition really, I know personally for me, that's when I started using arpeggios, like you said, and using things like scales. They started to go, I'd practice them on classical guitar. And then again, same as you think, well, what were these for? Then I started playing the bass. But it wasn't until I started trying to use them for composition that I really started to click with me. Do you find that with your students at JMI and yourself that that's so important to make that connection with composition? Yeah, definitely. And I think um, one thing I find the biggest fear in a lot of people generally is improvising. Everyone sort of has... We all have a fear of improvising and, yep. uh, you know, and just as a generalisation, a lot of the time is because people don't want to sound bad when they're playing music. Yep. And then the, you know, the idea of comparing ourselves to the absolute greats, like, you know, you, you might listen like listen to like Coltrane or Sonny Stitt or, yep. you know, Dexter Gordon or Sonny Rollins, any of those great tennis saxophone players. And if you're, if you're a young tennis saxophone player and you're picking up the tennis saxophone, and you're comparing and you're going, oh, that's what improvisation is. Straight away, you're like, oh, well, yeah, that's going to be really hard. Yeah. But, I, you know, we forget that improvisation is just instant composition. So yeah. we need to we need to pull that back to a, a level that you're at, the way you can compose something that makes sense and then build it up from there. So, yeah, composition is the, the big key here. I think it's really important. Yeah, I think some people forget that like what you just said improvisation is like composition in real time like mm. th- that to make that connection is it's almost like a light bulb moment for some people you know but i was thinking about jmi like being in brisbane for a while there you guys were pushing the jam sessions all the time how important has that been to the backbone of jmi as an institution to sort of get young folks out there improvising and not trying to ex- expect themselves to be like John Coltrane, but to be able to get into an environment where they can go, you know, what, I'm going to have a crack anyway. How important is that? Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's incredibly important. Um, and it's, uh, it's also a struggle because uh, you deal with like, whenever you're dealing with anyone, uh, we're always dealing with ego. Yeah. So, um, you know, um, the, the biggest, I still find this, uh, I saw it the other night, we had a jam session the other night, um, I saw it on the jam session again, it's like the every, all the musicians up there are all good players, they can all play, yeah. but it comes down to, you know, their ego of how are they going to play together. Yeah. Um, so what, what, is, what is interesting, and I'm, uh, this, is, I, this is one thing I love about what I do, is actually just trying to get, people to listen to each other and not um, like, you have to be good. We've got to be good. We all got to, and it's not like there's um, being good means that you can play your scales at 400 BPM or you can do being good can mean many, 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 many things. And 
to be honest, the best musicians, really, they've, they're the best listeners, just like we have as people. Like, you know, your best friends are the people who listen to you the most. Not your, and your, the people you hang around that you don't want to hang around, it's because they don't listen to you. It's, so it's, yeah. it's also drawing these things as a comparison, these social things as a comparison to people to make them realise this is a, it's a, it's a people music and it's a very spontaneous music. So therefore we need to be very well equipped with listening, but we need to be really, really um, mature in the way we dealing with people. And that's a real difficulty, but um, trying to, I, I think the best thing is to create the environment for people to, to do that. So, so they can start seeing that themselves. And there's a lot of times, you know, with a lot of jam sessions that you'll have, you know, one of us, like someone like myself or a, another sort of, you know, musician my age around just sort of helping out little things like just, and it could just be like just getting in the ear of someone and say, Hey, just, just play a bit quieter or, you know, just stick to the groove. Don't put too much into that right now. Or, yeah. you know, things like that. Or, you know, so yeah. I think they're really, um, that's what's good. And then on the flip side, this is where it happens. This is what is another wonderful thing about it. on the flip side is that when people then gravitate towards each other and they form a band, yep. that level of listening and that level of deep understanding. And then they have that, they have a social connection. That's when you see really, really, um, great music get get played mm. um you know and the only you know the only danger i find with the jam session is the history of the jam sessions and i was talking to this um the other day with um a friend of ours who is originally from new zealand but he lived in sydney for a long time and his name is brent stanton and he's been living in new york now for 30 years wow and he was saying that you know like a lot of the time when he was in Australia, he felt that um, a lo- uh, all the musicians were playing for other musicians. But then when he went to New York, he felt that all the musicians were playing for the audience. Yep. So there's a real different mentality in just that. And so I think it's important to, you know, people to understand these sorts of things as well. Um, yeah, so, know, yeah, that's cool because it's a, like a psychological element that you're trying to teacher students like I had this process recently where I I'm studying with a bass player overseas that's kicking my butt which is great and I sent him some stuff and he said look your bass playing is great but when you take a solo it's like you're scared and I was like and that was and it's a psychological thing It's, it's a bit of harmonic stuff in there he pointed out but for me, it was like, well, again, you said that thing about I don't want to sound bad when I do a, when I take a solo, yeah. or you know, whereas playing a baseline was my comfort zone, you know. So how do you get that across to a student to be able to go, look, don't worry about that stuff? Because I know as a youth, I worried so much about that stuff, but now yeah. I sort of go, I'm older, I can handle it. But how do you pass that on to a student, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I think the the important thing to point out firstly is like and I, I what I use as a sort of teaching technique is sort of um goalposts like or signposts like yeah and you know if you you know sometimes it's really good to come from like a really like free avant-garde scenario where you just get them to just to play anything yeah and then point out to them like you know nothing actually sounds bad yeah like 
like in reality, like, yeah, there's no bad music. I remember like, I remember doing these, these gigs um, with the local guitarist, Russell Bain, and he had this, um, the, it was always these sort of like old guys and I was like the young guy and all these guys were in their seventies and I was, this is about 10 years ago. So it was, it was actually awesome to play with these guys and it's all playing all trad sort of stuff. And I remember one of these guys, um, uh, Chris Schnack, he played, played the tuba and he also played the bass in um, Caxton Street Jazz Band. Right. And he, like, you know, he's an old guy, but, you know, he was quite witty and funny as well. But I remember him turning around to me one day. He goes, you know, there's no real, there's no bad music, really. Yeah. And I was like, I was just knocked out. I was like, man, like, wow, for someone of your age, because a lot of those guys can get so, you know, yep. set in their ways, for you to actually say that, that actually made me go, yeah, you're right. And then it made me sort of think, okay, well, if there's some, if there's music out there that I don't like, why is it that I don't like it? Yep. You know, so I started doing that and then starting, you know, putting that onto the students and go, well, look, nothing's actually going to sound bad. So if you're, if you're playing, you know, the right notes and yeah, we're talking, let's say we're talking like beginner people here, right. And we, we put a blues up in front of them and, you know, we're not necessarily dealing with the blues scale, but we're dealing with trying to play the harmony of the, of the tune. Like it could be a blues or a standard or whatnot. Yep. Now I say to them like, you know, and I'll demonstrate, look, I'll play, I'll, I'll take a solo where I play the root note of every chord and I'll only play the root notes of the chord and put rhythm to it. Now, if you do that, if you put rhythm to that and you stay in time, it won't sound bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's going to work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, the problem comes in is, is that, you know, great old saying, which I was alluding to before is, um, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. And so, you know, if I'm going to play that solo and then think I sound like Lee Morgan, well, there's a disparity there. Yeah, so that's right. <laughs> you know, but, like, I think it's important to go, well, don't worry about that. You're you're not Lee Morgan. Um, so, therefore, just be where you can be. And I like to relate a lot of my teaching back to uh, language and yep. our, our language is we've got such a dynamic language. Like there's new words being invented all the time, yet we've only got 26 characters. There's only 26 letters, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But there's new words. Um, so it's not like it's um, a stale sort of thing. So, you know, I sort of say like when you're talking to, like for me, if I'm talking to a, a two-year-old, I can have a conversation with a two-year-old. Yeah, that's right. It won't be, it won't be a flowing conversation like this is. Um but I can still converse and, you know, have a good time as, you know, sort of thing. Mm. The, the problem is, is that with beginning students is that they obviously not two years old. They might be in like, you know, for me, they might be like late high school or starting at uni at JMI. So they've got their own hangups with like, oh my God, I should be better than this. Mm. That And that's that thing is like, well, it's don't worry about that. You know, you've actually still got to do step one before you get to step two, Yeah, you know, and, and I relate it again to like, you know, we, we're always talking, you know, you've got to walk before you run. And, you know, and I tell my students, you know, for me as a parent, um, one of the most amazing things or the, the most amazing development happened in my daughter was when she went from lying just to sitting and like she, she sat up and we we're like, Oh my gosh, look, she's sitting. Isn't this incredible? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. We, we forget how these, such slow processes, how important they are. And 
Um, so as a teaching method, I like to build it up from there and then just start with arpeggios and just move into just using one or two arpeggios. Um, yep. And then looking at all the different combinations you do. From there, I mean, you can start talking about voice leading and all sorts of stuff straight away, like trying to connect this chord to that chord. There's a lot of information with that. So looking back at some of your students that have come out of JMI, when they do progress pursuing a career, like how satisfying is that for you? Even when you get to go and play with these guys now that they're out on their own, what's that like for you? It's, it's, it is awesome. Um, it's very easy to be very proud about it. And I'm very grateful to be in a position that I'm in to, to do this. Um, but a lot of time, um, to be honest, I, I'm actually more proud of them for doing the work that they did more so than me teaching. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause I, yeah. I think this is where it, like the, this is where it comes, you know, it comes down to the individual. A couple of years ago, we had, um, John Riley, the drummer, he was out here for some, you know, drum clinic thing and we nabbed him for a workshop and um, he teaches at the Manhattan School of Music and he was real, um, he was like real tough on the students, like really tough. Wow. <laughs> Most people come in, they're sort of, you know, they like, they, they might sort of throw a few points at them to sort of get a point across. But like he was like almost relentless. It was, and it was sort of good, but almost a little bit uncomfortable as well. Wow. Um, but he told us right at the end, because you could tell, and he, you know, he's a very intuitive um, person. So, he could tell everyone was like, you know, down now. They're like, oh, my gosh. And then he told this story of um, when, you know, one day at Manhattan School and they had Cecil Taylor come in. I think it was Cecil Taylor, someone like that, you know, some sort of uh, heavy. And, um, like, he tore shreds off all the students. <laughs> and, like, and everyone, and like, all the lecturers are going, oh, wow, this is really full on. And then at the end of it, he said, um, like all the university lecturers said to him, oh, look, you've got to actually give these students a grade. You've actually got to give them a grade out of 100 for these performances. And he's like, oh, great, sure, no problems. And then they started freaking out, like, oh, my gosh, like we can't have these students failing this because he, was, you know, he turned around and gave every single one of them a grade. He gave them 100 out of 100. Yeah, right. And then they <laughs> they turned around and they, they said back to him, they said, like, you know, you just tore shreds off them in the workshop and then you gave them a hundred out of a hundred. Like, what's that about? And he said, look, anyone who's going to pursue this deserves a hundred out of a hundred. Yeah. Right. That's an awesome you know, story. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like, you know, we all have to, you know, this, and this is a cool thing about music um, and is that there is no end to it. Like the end to it is when you stop doing it. That's when it ends for you. You know, um, music itself is larger than any single person. Like yeah. music itself, it doesn't need people. People need music. Yeah, it's true. So, you know, it's this is why it's so humbling and it's so um, difficult and for us. And then, you know, we see people, I think a lot, of, a lot of the thing I see in my students and, you know, even dealing with this myself is that you see people, who um who are good and then all of a sudden they get pushed through the ranks and then they they become like oh you're semi-famous or well known or famous or whatnot and they can get really we can easily get despondent by that because we're like yeah hey you know I work I work harder than that or so there's all these sorts of things but at the end of the day all these sorts of issues that all those sorts of issues that arise are awesome because it just makes us a better person yeah true 
by making it us making us a better person, it means that we're going to sort of if we're going to stick at this music game, but we're going to deal with our own personality issues more and more and more and more. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think this is this is the big thing for me with where in education is that I think you know like you know and we read about it all the time in social media how you know schools and governments are sort of cutting back on their arts programs and that sort of stuff. But it's it's I'm I'm serious. Like I, I think like these sorts of things really help people. Like mm. I haven't met. I'm um, and you know all, not all my um, high school friends were musicians or have become musicians. You know, uh, to be honest, in my grade, none of my friends. I was the only person that pursued music. Yet all my friends were all we're all band nerds. We're all in the school band and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But ever since then, I've not met a person that doesn't like music on some level. Mm. Now, I've met lots of people that tell me they hate jazz. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I, I don't like it all either, but, you know, yeah, yeah. that's cool. And and when and it's really, I love it when a person's got a real strong opinion about mm. what it is they like about music. You know, so I think it's interesting that we have, as a global community, we have music as a source, as part of our DNA, yet we as a global community, we don't tap into it like we should. And you only see it in like you know, African cultures or um, South American sort of cultures where it's literally part of their DNA. Mm. And that's that's where things are different, you know. Okay. So we big goal for me, sorry, just big goal for me is to try to get across to people and just get people into music in some way, like yeah. know, whatever it's going to be. If it means deeper listening and exploring more stuff, great. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being on uh, the program, the podcast. And it's been so uh, really informative to talk to you about, you know, your life growing up in jazz, how you've put that into JMI and, you know, all these other great stories that we've talked about and really appreciate you taking the time. Hopefully we can have you on again soon and maybe talk a bit more about these systems and the Ellington program when we can kick back into post-COVID sort of environment. And, but thanks again, mate. Yeah, definitely. Look, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk to you, Dave.
So that was Steve Russell and a track from his recording entitled Dark Matters. And that track was called Elsie. And it featured Steve on piano, who is also a faculty member at JMI and very well known, not only in the Brisbane jazz scene, but also throughout Australia. And that album also featured on guitar, Matt Smith on drums, Scott Hills, and on electric bass, Greg Lyon. And before the track we heard from Steve Russell, we heard another track from Dan Quigley's album, Brunswick Street Station, and that track was called Alley Cat. And as you can hear, Dan is very steeped in the jazz tradition. What a fantastic album that is. Well, we've come to the end of another show, and it's been great to hear some of the artists that have come out of JMI, the only Australian institution that is solely dedicated to jazz. And it was great to catch up with Dan Quigley and to hear how JMI has evolved over the years to what it has become today. Now, if you would like to get in touch with the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast, please send us an email to australianjazzandgroovepodcast at gmail.com. And please contact us on social media through Facebook or Instagram if you have any requests or if you would like to have your music played on the podcast. And as we say at the end of every episode, please go and buy this music. It's the best way that you can support these fantastic Australian artists. Well, we've come to the end, folks. That's enough from me. It's been great to have you along. I hope you've enjoyed the music. And we hope to have you along again on the next episode of the Australian Jazz and Group Podcast. Bye for now.